0: We began this brief story with Montaigne's insistence on the possibility of imminent contentment. His attempt to demonstrate that we can indeed limit our aspirations to the confines of this mortal life and find our satisfaction by trying to live pleasantly, peacefully, and reasonably within them. Pascal thought Montaigne was a brilliant analyst of human psychology, but then nonetheless, he was totally wrong about who we were and how we should live. Our third author, Alexis de Tocqueville, takes Montaigne and Pascal's argument and makes it echo across the pages of his most famous work, Democracy in America. Tocqueville was born in 1805 to an aristocratic family with deep ties to the old regime and to the religion, Catholicism, that seemed inextricably bound up with it. Tocqueville's parents were imprisoned during the revolutionary years and indeed slated for execution. They were spared only by one of the frequent changes of revolutionary government, which allowed them to be suddenly released. But they had had the experience of watching their friends and relatives being taken out of the jail cell and led to the guillotine one by one, and they never got over that experience. At age 20, Tocqueville's father's hair was already white His mother had a nervous affliction, which she never got over. After the family dinner, she'd take her kids and relatives around the fire and sing melancholy songs of the ancien regime. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for Tocqueville to adopt the largely counter-revolutionary attitude of his family and indeed of his class. But he didn't do that. He also refused to break rank entirely and throw his lot in with the largely irreligious partisans of democratic freedom. Instead, he aimed to chart a new course. As he put it in his most famous work, Democracy in America, he sought to see further than both parties in order to understand the possibilities and perils of modern democratic politics, which he was convinced would dominate Western history for the foreseeable future. A key component of Tocqueville's ability to see further than both parties was the trip he was able to take in America in the 1830s. At that point, Tocqueville was an apprentice magistrate in the French government and was sent to America by that government with the official purpose of observing the penitentiary system, which at the time was thought to be progressive. Tocqueville's private purpose for this trip, however, was to observe a relatively healthy democracy in order to get a better perspective on the possibilities and dangers of this ascendant political form. Tocqueville came to America then, ready to see something new. And he was able to see it in a new way. For you might say he read the prose of American life with the poetry of the moralist resounding in his ears. Tocqueville steeped himself in the thought of the moral east, from Montaigne through Rousseau. And when he would go to write his memoirs later in his life, would explicitly seek to describe, inscribe his own writing in that tradition. His engagement with Pascal was particularly intense. Reading Tocqueville as the heir of the moral East allows us to see the world he depicts in democracy in America in a new light. For what Tocqueville is depicting in that book is something of the great drama of the soul that played out on the pages of our authors, but scaled down to the everyday domestic world of millions of ordinary households and multiplied over the expanse of an enormous nation. What Tocqueville sees in America is what happens when imminent contentment becomes the standard aspiration for millions of people. When he remarks that Americans are restless in the midst of their prosperity, he's thinking of Pascal and his diagnosis of the restless unhappiness of democratic man is an echo of Pascal's diagnosis of the restless unhappiness of Montaignean man. In Montaigne, the quest for imminent contentment was an elite, almost a boutique phenomenon. In America, the pursuit for imminent contentment gains the overpowering endorsement of democratic popular opinion. Tocqueville describes this as a kind of immense pressure of the mind of all on the intelligence of each. The Montaignean view that our common human condition matters more than the artificial hierarchies of social status is you can see the forerunner of the democratic belief in what Tocqueville calls the equality of conditions. We see the Montaignean attraction to travel and his wariness of conventional human ties and the American will- willingness to uproot oneself and follow the call of fortune across the country, leaving family and friends behind. Montaigne's love of poking fun at the high and mighty, his cheeky defense of our, ma- our material and bodily existence become principal features in Tocqueville's portrait of democratic man. Even Montaigne's skepticism becomes the default intellectual posture of an entire nation. What does this all mean for the character of the American pursuit of happiness? which after all we enshrine in our foundational documents. Tocqueville saw that the more successful the democratic spread of liberty, opportunity, and prosperity becomes, the more unsettled democracy's citizens will be by the restlessness Pascal identified in the Montanians of his own generation. Ever increasing equality and prosperity do not cure our restlessness. Indeed, they entrench it our unease is the product of our success. At the heart of Tocqueville's ambition to teach democracy to know itself is an effort to teach democratic human beings the Pascalian lesson that the imminent contentment they seek will never be enough for a human soul. His portrait of the democratic quest for happiness makes the case for this anthropological proposition. The two defining features of the democratic quest for happiness, according to Tocqueville, are the desire for material well-being and the desire to think the question of happiness through for ourselves. Here again, Tocqueville puts a paradox before us. For how is it that in a nation of people who desire to figure out what happiness means in their own terms, so many of us get caught up in the same old scramble after material goods? Why does the freedom to live out a grand variety of individual and distinctive quests for the good life result in so much homogeneity? Stokeful begins to untangle this paradox by showing how the desire to think about what will make us happy for ourselves actually plays out in our individual lives. Americans engage in the noble challenge of deciphering the world on our own and pride ourselves on living in the light of our self-generated convictions. This ambition helps us become famously adept at solving the practical difficulties that life presents and makes us world leaders in industry, technology, and research. Such successes cause us to believe that everything in the world is akin to the problems our practical prowess helps us solve. Everything is an obstacle to be overcome by hard work and ingenuity. For a nation of aspirational pioneers, nothing lies permanently beyond the grasp of our intelligence. Everything is potentially explicable. Self-reliant people naturally want to see for themselves the naked truth about things. To get to the heart of the matter, they like to peel away appearances with the solvent of their doubt. This kind of impatience with appearances naturally gives us an abiding suspicion of the thought of the great names of the past. Americans, Tocqueville notes, take tradition only as information. The history of thought is interesting, maybe, but it's not authoritative. It doesn't tell us anything about what we must do or give us any kind of special guidance on how we might live. Fascinated as we are with innovation and technological advancement, we readily suppose that we could do better. Democratic human beings are intellectual progressives by default. Such assertions of intellectual independence, however, can be self undermining. For when we get past the simple desire to think for ourselves and seriously attempt to do so, we find it's no easy matter questions abound. How should I live? What does happiness consist of? What are my duties? Is there a God? Does that God demand anything of me? Is the world created or is it the product of chance? Answers to such questions or even serious explorations of such questions are dauntingly difficult to find or undertake. In fact, the obvious way to go about exploring them would be to investigate the thoughts of the great men and women who have spent lives meditating on them. But we're not terribly inclined to do that. For such study requires a kind of deference against which the egalitarian mind naturally rebels. It's laborious and it bears little in the way of immediate and tangible fruit. It tries our patience. So things turn out rather strangely for us. We want to think for ourselves about what would make us happy, but we have an aversion to seriously investigating alternative answers to that question. Our impatience to know makes us poor philosophers. To philosophize is to lose oneself in thinking, to forget time. Democratic human beings never forget time. We can't afford to do it. For the basic parameters of our way of life, The equality of conditions that defines our regime means that no one has a fixed station. If we're not working on getting ahead, others might be scrambling past us. We need to work, and we need to have something to show for it. We love the idea of thinking independently about happiness, but we resist the philosophic activity required to do so. We fear philosophy because we fear it might cause us to miss out on life. That the happiness we could seize here and now might pass us by while we're transfixed by thinking. Citizens of a modern democracy are attracted to skepticism, which is a great tool of intellectual leveling. We naturally admire the life of someone like Socrates who questioned the gods of a city, but we lack the taste for sustained thought that can make doubt become the center of a determinate way of life as it was for Socrates, for St. Augustine, and for others like them. Instead, our reflexive skepticism causes us to shrink back from deeply exploring or firmly committing to any determinate way of life. Everyone sees the appeal of well-roundedness. At the high end, it looks like enormous percentages of Ivy League grads going into consulting. Why? Because it's lucrative and pleasingly amorphous. For the rest of us, it looks like the strange difficulty we have in saying no to any opportunity that comes our way. One can begin to see then how the desire to think about happiness for oneself without the taste or the cultivated ability to actually do that thinking causes us to to end up pursuing material goods above all. For material goods and particularly money have much of their value as means rather than ends Money, as Thomas Aquinas argues, is a universal means, useful for pretty much any pursuit of happiness. We can use it to buy buy rock climbing equipment, or books, or luxury vacations. Its plasticity is at the heart of its emotional appeal. But our obsession with it transforms our pursuit of happiness into the pursuit of its somewhat necessary, but not at all sufficient condition. We console ourselves, however, with the hope that someday we will buy ourselves the leisure to think it all through. In the meantime, our quest for the good life becomes a slapdash sequence of vocations and vacations. As Tocqueville writes, a man in the United States carefully builds a house in which to best spend his old age, and then he sells it while the ridgepole is being set. He plants a garden, and then he rents it as he is about to taste its fruits. He clears a field and then he leaves to others the trouble of gathering the harvest. He embraces a profession and then he leaves it. He settles in a place that he soon leaves in order to carry his changing desires elsewhere. If his private affairs give him some respite, he immediately plunges into the whirl of politics. And when near the end of a year filled with work He still has a little leisure. He takes his restless curiosity here and there across the vast limits of the United States. Montaigne self-consciously designed a life without unified form and direction. Democratic human beings, discouraged by so many factors from thinking steadily about what they are and what they long for, inhabit such formless lives by default. Our conclusion, one of the main motivations for us in writing the book from which this lecture is drawn is to help our students think about their pursuit of happiness more clearly. We were puzzled and we were saddened by watching so many of them, and especially those that seem to have the most promise falter on the very cusp of life. Our thoughts on the matter started to take shape when in the course of a classroom discussion, One of those students spoke of his deep distaste for choosing among the many splendid life options he had before him, because it would mean converting a hazy but indefinitely promising might be into any definite is. When he said that, the room fell silent. You could tell he had touched upon everyone's secret fear Innumerable pressures in their young lives were conspiring to encourage them to remain as long as possible in the condition of stem cells. Conveniently malleable, ready to employ their talents in whatever way might be called for. Those pressures push all of us towards a strange preference for indefinite potential over substantial reality. We wrote the book from which this paper is drawn to help people understand how we came to this odd position. And we hope that it might help some of us acquire the self-knowledge we would need to seek a different way forward. How might we begin to do so? The first step, we think, is to recover the suggestion that launched this whole modern love of indeterminacy. The Montanian proposition that we will find happiness by seeking moderation through variation. We need to remember that argument, first of all, to see its effects on us and second, to think it through anew. For Montaigne's case for thoroughgoing doubt is not as airtight as it might seem. It's worth noting that Montaigne's case for skepticism about what constitutes human happiness does not rest on refuting all the alternative arguments philosophers have made to answer the question of the good life. Montaigne does not himself engage in argument Rather, he proceeds by piling up all those potential answers and then standing back and remarking, listen to the clatter of those philosophic brains. And you feel why you might want to stand with him and say, that's enough. In the atmosphere of the wars of religion of his time, Montaigne's proposition seemed like a breath of fresh air. But as his daring stratagem has become our unquestioned assumption, it has come to exacerbate rather than ameliorate the problems of restlessness, distraction, and uncertainty with which we wrestle. Once we come to understand this intellectual inheritance, we can liberate ourselves from it by seeking to think beyond Montaigne's reflexive skepticism. Approaching the questions of our nature and our good as if we might ask them with the hope of finding real answers might help the young escape from the increasingly characteristic conundrum of their lives. This will require turning back to pre-modern philosophic arguments, plumbing ancient sources of wisdom in a quest for modern understanding. The moralists themselves did just that and they wore their learning lightly. Their personal, powerful and jargon-free thought can be a model for our own quest for happiness. Thank you very much.